Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. I'm your host PJ Thumb, freshly off the plane back from Oxford in the UK. And after uh, a fortnight of uh, Brexit chaos in the UK, I arrived back to Singapore for what seems to be a fortnight of bicentennial chaos. So we're here today to talk about the bicentennial. Also with me as usual is my brilliant co-host, New Narrative's Editor-in-Chief, Kirsten Han. How are you, Kirsten? I'm good. Um, I really don't know how to feel about this bicentennial thing. I'm glad it's not everywhere like SG50, but it's in enough places to be quite annoying. Also with us this week uh, are our three guests. Uh, who uh, are going to provide a very interesting wide range of uh, views on um, the Bicentennial or possibly all agree that it is horrible and it sucks. We'll see. So first off, Fadia is a member of The Reading Group and also co-edited a book titled Budi Critic, which came out last year on contemporary issues facing uh, Muslims in, in Singapore or in South Asia? In the region, Singapore in the region, region yeah. How is the book doing? I think it did pretty well. Um, it was published by Ethos and um, it was sold in Kinokuniya and a few other bookstores. We heard that there were only a few copies left. So I think I think the discussion was very, it's very current. I think something that people generally want to read about. So I think it was quite timely that the book was published. It's a completion of essays, um, mostly by new writers you wanted to like invite or extend the invitation to people who don't normally get the platform to write or speak on these issues so we wrote about um, politics religion culture literature history and so on i mean you will have to look oh, at it if you fantastic. want fantastic yeah it sounds exactly like a certain website called new narrative <laughs> it kind of sounds like yeah. it it's just a different format i guess right we'll have yeah. to uh, yeah we'll have to get uh, see if your writers are interested in in writing more for us yeah definitely fantastic. definitely yeah great Okay, also with us is Farhan, a freelance researcher and convener of the Critical Humanities Forum, Brass Basa Open. So tell us about that. Hello, hello PJ. So like, uh, thanks for having me over. Uh, Brass Basa Open is actually a Critical Humanities Forum where um, we do like discussions of books or, or concepts in, in critical theory or in political, social and philosophical thought. And uh, what we what we try to achieve here is to have a kind of like open, uh, open community of like uh, of people who are interested in critical theory to kind of like come together and to discuss topics in a very uh, using a very critical lens. And uh, I also convene a, a decolonial town hall. And um, what we do here is to think is to think through the meanings of decolonization and the afterlives of colonialism in the local context. Uh, so, can anyone attend these events? Oh yeah, uh, um, every, everyone is free to attend these events. So, like uh, you know, you can register and like we we do we do like two or three events per month. So uh, feel free to do so. Yeah, where where can they uh, sign up for these events? Um, okay, usually like we have a very good like Facebook presence and events will be sent out on Facebook. So what uh, keep a watch on that. Cool. Thank you very much. And finally, last but not least, Bani Haikal, a musician and an artist. So Bani, tell us, what kind of music do you uh, perform? Um, I guess I mostly work with music as material, sort of like a start point into various uh, 
points of interest. Uh, so one of my most recent work that I just finished is on uh, the cultural Cold War, where I was looking at jazz music uh, specifically as uh, a very uh, important instrument in the way that uh, well uh, the Cold War operated uh, from the U.S. Uh, point of view. Uh, also talking about the way that jazz music was internationalized and the kinds of uh, dissonances and uh, various complexities and contradictions that occurred during that period. Yes, I, I personally really enjoy jazz. And there's also this whole sort of social political component of sort of resistance against oppression, resistance against uh, constraints that is uh, very much um, an undercurrent of, of jazz, isn't there? Sure, but I, I guess what was interesting was that jazz became uh, a, a, a significant uh, symbol of freedom, democracy, and all that jazz to some degree. Uh, also, to put it into context, jazz music sort of emerged during a time where there were uh, a lot of discrimination that occurred against uh, uh, you know, black America in general. Uh, yet, it became a, a very important tool in the way that cultural uh, exchanges occurred or rather that there was a lot of focus as to how jazz was a unique uh, uh, you know American cultural product uh, seeing that pretty much everything else well, came from Europe or influences were from Europe but jazz music was significantly American so that sort of uh, uh, complexity that occurred, you know, where a lot of discrimination uh, occurred, yet there was a lot of financing of how jazz music became internationalized uh, during that period was for me quite important to think about, you know, uh, the role that jazz music had uh, around the world, uh, also in this region. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Uh, there's so much there to, to talk about. We're going to have to have you back, Bunny, to talk about music and art and, and you know, uh, resistance against uh, oppression. Um, so before we get on to the main topic today, uh, I'd like to mention that this podcast is coming out in conjunction with uh, a special episode of the podcast, um, which contains a recording of the lecture that I gave last week at the University of Cambridge. Um, I, in it, I talked about how the Singapore government has framed Singapore history um, how that framing has drastically shifted over the years, you know, from Singapore is Malayan to Singapore has no history to Singapore owes everything to the PAP and Lee Kuan Yew. And then how these framings then weaponize nationalism to the benefit of the government. And in particular, I talk about how celebrating the bicentennial and colonialism reinforces colonial mindsets and you know, the, the idea that subjugating a people for their own good is okay, you know, it, that, that's just obscene, but that, that's what re is reinforced by this. And also racial hierarchies. Anyway, you can check out the whole uh, lecture uh, on a special episode of Political Agenda, which will be out at the same time as this one. So uh, do, do take a listen and it'll be on the New Narrative website as usual. Okay, so, uh, Kirsten, what the hell is going on? Oop, pardon my language. What on earth has been going on in Singapore while I've been away? And why are we celebrating this crazy bicentennial? So, the 28th of January this year was the 200th anniversary of Sir Stamford Raffles uh, landing in Singapore and deciding to acquire us for the East India Company to trade from. And so, this year kicks off so 28th January was the launch of a whole year of commemoration of this 200th anniversary and what they call the SG Bicentennial, which also then sounds like the SG50 that we had just a few years ago, right? Uh, 
but it is a little bit of a strange messaging because it it's called the bicentennial, which means it marks out eighteen nineteen as the pivotal year. But at the same time, they seem to be very afraid of being slammed for celebrating colonialism, so they keep repeating that oh, our history is more than 1819, it goes back further than that. So we keep basically kind of swinging between, oh, it's a 200 years of history. No, it's 700 years of history. No, it's 200 years of history. And we keep going back and forth like a little bit of a pendulum. So that's mostly what the SG Bicentennial has been so far. I think there'll be like a year of events, arts events, exhibitions. I think there's already an exhibition about raffles on in one of the museums and things like that. So we'll, we'll see this throughout the year. Mm. And for those who haven't been following Singapore, SG50 was a celebration that we had in 2015, which celebrated 50 years of Singapore's independence. So from 1965, that was 50 years. So now in 2019, we've suddenly gone from 50 years old to 200 years old, or maybe 700 years old. We're not entirely sure. And that's kind of left Singaporeans, or at least like me, I feel a little bit odd because then I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to respond to in this bicentennial. Like SG50, I knew, okay, 50 years since 1965, 50 years of independence. Um, the bicentennial, it's it's a bit odd because we don't usually mark the anniversary of Raffles Landing and suddenly now we do... And I don't know, am I supposed to be very proud of the fact that 200 years ago we were colonized? Or am I supposed to be proud that our history goes back 700 years, but we never learned very much about that in school? So what is this thing that we're all supposed to be proud of? And so, Bunny, what do you think that there is a bicentennial now? Why are they doing it this year? Um, I, I think one thing that uh, we were sort of like casually speaking about earlier on is also about this... Uh, Correlation or relating back to Centenary Day that happened in 1919, back when we were still part of the British Empire in that sense, and so I feel like the this coming up again, I suppose, is uh, on some level it's another reason to celebrate and uh, to uh, as in for the state to celebrate something else in lieu of potentially something happening in the future, whatever that may be, uh, and so in that sense, I feel like. Uh, with uh, in that relation, it it sort of like opens up, and I think with a lot of the uh, criticisms that sort of like came about, maybe it's also on the one hand, I feel like as much as we should talk about this bicentennial, I think it's also a, a an excellent chance for us to also maybe reflect on the need for celebration, uh, which I think is. Uh, something that at least I'm thinking about in relation to how we are always offered a platform or, a, or, 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 or an occasion to celebrate. What exactly are we celebrating? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I think dealing with notions of colonization and also either looking forward or confronting that past, I'm particularly curious about how not just one particular actor responds to it, but where all the multiplicities are and how all these converge or rather diverge and and spark new conversations about how we untangle and deal with this particular complex beast that is the bicentennial, whatever yeah. that is. I think when they first announced that they wanted to commemorate the bicentennial, it didn't sound 
at least from that announcement, it didn't sound like there was much awareness of the grappling of this complex beast. But then you raise a really good point of like celebrations. Why are there always things to celebrate? And I think particularly we should always ask ourselves when the state wants us to celebrate something, why do they want us to celebrate this thing? Mm. And what is it we're celebrating? And how are they framing it all? And what what are they getting out of it? You know, spending a lot of money on a bicentennial, creating a Singapore bicentennial office, mm-hmm. spending money on events, on exhibitions, on you know, funding the arts to do bicentennial-related things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people said that SG50 was a whole big year of nationalistic kind of propaganda and celebration, and then they called an election. So I remember, actually, even in you know, the New Year's Day message when he first mentioned the Bicentennial, when the Prime Minister first mentioned the Bicentennial, I think it was the 2000, December 2017, like going into 2018, so he had this New Year's Day message, and immediately people were like, is it because he's going to call elections in 2019, and they need something to be, to really like kind of hype up things and push the nationalistic story again. And so that, I think, is something that, I always keep in mind when I look at these bicentennial things, I'm like, they want us to celebrate something. The message is being pushed for something. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, it's kind of like, I think as Singaporeans, we still have a very confused, um, we don't know how to feel about colonialism. Mm. So we are still very unsure of where we stand vis-a-vis colonialism. And I think the bicentennial reflects just that because um, on one hand, it's like, acknowledging colonialism right firstly it happened but it's also trying to downplay the fact that it happens so i feel like you know by trying to um for them to kind of fit in the whole multiculturalism narrative into colonialism tries to kind of erase the fact that there's that hierarchy right between the colonizer and the colonized so i think my first reaction when i saw the multiple statues that came out at first i thought it was a joke i thought people photoshopped it but I didn't think it was real. Then I checked the Bicentennial Facebook page and they're very active um, <laughs> in updating things. So I, when, when I saw it, I thought, oh, okay, so there was, it's real. Like, you know, these are real statues that they built. So I thought that the fact that they're trying to put all of these people together from the different um, communities and to say that we all, they all built Singapore together is trying to downplay the fact that there's the hierarchy. Like, how can you put the colonizer together with the colonized subjects mm. and say that you know they all contributed because it's not it's not a contribution i mean one is the colonizer and the rest are the subjects of that colony right so but i think by trying to downplay that kind of um power structures and by fitting in that multicultural narrative i think that's how they try to kind of placate or like make people feel a bit better about colonialism I yeah think. and i think it, the reason that they might be getting away with it is because you know, the way we teach colonialism and the way we think about it is the dominant narrative in Singapore is that colonialism was somehow some sort of net good for us. Like, it might not have been a net good for Africa, it might not have been a good for India, but Singapore did really well out of it. So, you know, we don't seem to have a problem with colonialism. Yeah, I think there isn't this recognition, like in many other colonial countries, right? Uh, people are conscious of the number of people who died under colonialism. And we don't think about that at all. We know that there were significant populations of Ong, Orang Laut in Singapore. And then mysteriously, a few years after Raffles arrives, they get wiped out, right? 
I mean, is that merely coincidence or is there some sort of correlation there? You know, Europeans conquered the new world using guns, germs and steel. And one of those three could very easily have wiped out a huge chunk of our indigenous population. And then we romanticize the immigrant populations who come. But if you read the history of um, the you know, coolies, uh, the rickshaw laborers, you know, all the people doing this, this um, horrible uh, work, right, physical labor, many of them died in, in horrible conditions, right? If you read Jim Warren's Rickshaw Coolie, for example, right, or his book on prostitution in Singapore before World War II, we know that there was a huge human cost to, um, you know, colonialism in Singapore. And we don't, we don't really have any good knowledge of that. And we don't even think or talk about that. Um, I, I wanted to add on uh, to what Fadia said. Um, the excessive focus on the, uh, on the number, you know, uh, 1819, um, in, in bicentennial discourse, I think it suggests that um, it, it's, it actually does two things. Uh, I mean, like the, term, uh, uh, the date 1819, uh, it's um, significant, but for the wrong reasons. 1819 marks the point in, uh, in history whereby in Singapore we now think that our fates are not deeply intertwined with the larger, uh, larger Malay world or the larger Malay archipelago. And um, also, uh, 1819 actually marks a new set of uh, land relations and, uh, which actually does a kind of like ideological support to support the idea that like, Singapore was a immigrant... I- is an immigrant nation, and uh, while conveniently forgetting uh, forgetting that um, the original inhabitants of the land uh, are dispossessed, so um, in the sense, uh, eighteen nineteen also forces us to um, to critically think about uh, colonialism, in the sense that um, understanding colonialism is not is not really about something that remains solely in the past, but also how we inherit like, local colonial structures, um, colonial modes of thought, and um, the kind of relationship between our colonial past and our current present. Uh, another thing I want, wanted to say is about how, uh, you know, like all, when we inherit like colonial structures in thought, it is demonstrated to our, through our ideas of how we think of like the nation, how we think of like tradition. And I think we see that, right, in the, in the sorts of discussions that have come out. I've, I've seen... Like in the Straits Times, there was the op-ed by Warren Fernandez and then there's been, you know, op-eds in Channel News Asia and things like that. And they are they are very, very quick to dismiss or belittle any sort of critique of colonialism in Singapore, right? So it's it's kind of put aside as like, oh, you know, these people who just seem to be... It's almost like suggested that anyone who is anti-colonial or criticizes colonialism is some sort of party pooper this year like you know all these people so upset let's take a more nuanced look of like colonialism let's let's you know not just be angry at the past let's you know embrace the past and it and they talk about nuance but there's never any actual nuance it always comes out as colonialism was pretty good for us and if you look at the the sort of KPIs that they've put on it. The reason that colonialism is good for us is, oh, because we got rule of law from the British. And also because we learned English. Like, wasn't it good for us that we all learned English? Um, you know, and it... And I feel like for all the calls of nuance, they totally lost the nuance that the only reason that we gain from speaking English 
today is because the British also happen to force a whole bunch of other communities around the world to speak English. It's not like naturally that English was going to be, you know, the dominant language of the world. That was not a natural state of affairs. That was a effect of colonialism. Mm. But it's so embraced that, you know, when the British Foreign Secretary comes to Singapore, he's also patting himself on the back that like the British left Singapore English and rule of law. And and then that's uncritically, you know, parroted by Singaporeans ourselves. Can I just touch yeah. in uh, on on something when you mentioned about you know people being dispossessed and there's a fair amount of you know uh, uh, of not knowing or being puzzled so on and so forth. So in 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 when when things are or, or people are dispossessed or just the notion of the presence of dispossession, mm-hmm. we should also talk about or acknowledge the the concept of being possessed or what is being possessed so if you think of the body being possessed in that sense and you know being in a state of disarray or not knowing what has gotten into the body in that sense I think you know that is pretty much in my opinion what's happening right now so the state of confusion (laughs) is the what is in my body what what exactly is consuming me inside I do not know but I speak this language so on and so forth how do we move past this or rather like what how can we exorcise this notion of being possessed by something larger than uh, you know our 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 uh, frames of mind i suppose um, okay so i want to uh, we wanted to say something like uh, with the uh, the discourse surrounding bicentennial uh, what looms uh, at the back of, of our mind, minds is you know there's this still there's this recognition of like you have to have diverse voices but even so right, i think this is a the discourse around uh, the discourse surrounding the bicentennial it's a bit cynical in the sense that you know it preempts like deeper conversations surrounding colonialism and the legacies of colonialism. Yeah. Yeah, because they're trying to, you know, like hedge their bets, right? To pe- so like anytime someone criticizes the bicentennial for celebrating colonialism, then it's it's like, no, no, we're not because we're also saying that history goes back 700 yeah. years. But saying that history goes back 700 years is not a substitute for critique of the exploitation, exploitative nature of colonialism, right? Mm saying, oh yeah, just because we had a history that was longer than colonialism doesn't mean colonialism is okay. And you know, how, how is it that Singaporeans came to have this view of colonialism? How is it that we came to kind of think about it as like a good thing for us? Um, well, if I can talk a bit about our framing of history, right? Um, and how history has been used in Singapore um, since World War II, we've kind of gone through three uh, distinct phases of historical framing, right? From World War II uh, and the, the, the partition of Malaya in 1946 until separation from Malaysia in '65, Singapore was very much uh, a Malayan nation. And our historical narrative um, and you know, that, pro- that was promoted by the government in particular was that we were Malayan. And then after separation, in order to create this distinct nation state that was separate from Malaya, we needed a different identity. But um, any historical, any reasonable reading of our history led us back to Malaya. So instead, Rajaratnam declared that we had no history, right? We were going to create a new society, new men, right? New place in the world. And that lasted until the 80s when the PAP went through a series of massive policy failures. And in an attempt to reassert control and uh, push back against this narrative of increasing failure, they articulated what eventually in the mid-90s became the Singapore story, 
which is basically the equivalent of the Lee Kuan Yew story and the PAP story, promoting uh, the PAP as um, you know this this uh, uh, the uh, sort of natural uh, governors of the island, natural rulers of the island. But again, to get away from the framing of Singapore as Malayan, um, they had to find a different framework, and that framework then became the colonial framework. So the first history textbook in Singapore actually came out in 84 and dated Singapore's history from 1918. And it was, uh, you know, 1918, 1965, and it had a, a picture of the Raffles statue on the cover, right? And the PAP has then perpetuated this idea of, um, A, that, the, that colonialism was a good thing, the British government, the British colonial government was a good thing, and B, that the PAP are the natural heirs to that government and therefore you know, they should continue to be in charge. But also, more subtly, that if they say colonialism is a good thing, therefore the subjugation of a people for their own good you know, is, is, is okay. Right? Never mind that those people don't get to decide what is their own good. It's the subjugators who decide what is good. And so if the subjugation of a people is good, then the PAP can continue to subjugate us for our own good. And in particular, of course, the indigenous population uh, you know, can, should, must be subjugated for their own good. So it's this whole framing that uh, is designed to um, you know, weaponize nationalism, to build uh, a nation state that has the PAP at the center of it, intrinsic to it. Um, and this whole historical narrative that Singaporeans have been pretty much hit over the head with since 1984, and in particular since the introduction of Singapore Story in 1997, that has kind of led us to look at the past in this way, which is kind of deeply cynical and really also very ahistorical and immoral. Um, PJ, can I ask you a question? So like, do you think in the official narratives, does this, uh, you know, um, a very neat transition between like the colonial past and after that, like after the war, maybe like the anti-colonial past, and after that, like our post-colonial present, is there like uh, the kind of um, how do I put it, uh, uncritical like like linear trajectory of history? Uh, what what the historical narrative does is to privilege a very specific point of view, right? Which is not to say that it's an invalid point of view, but it's basically the. Lee Kuan Yew's point of view, the PAP English-speaking, you know, uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class professional point of view, uh, the ethnic Chinese point of view, yeah. you know, um, and so from that sense, there is a, a, a continuity in that the uh, what you see is that the colonial institutions, values, assumptions, frameworks are simply taken over by this emergent professional uh, middle class. Right, but they continue to govern in the exact same way using the same assumptions. You know, I've talked about this in, in various articles. Um, and so there is that fundamental continuity. And of course, that can only be justified if you say then colonialism was a good thing and therefore we continue it today. It's just that instead of white people in charge, it's, you know, yellow people in charge. People in white. Yeah. <laughs> people <laughs> in white, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what's interesting, because like, 
we cannot kind of imagine what we're like if not for colonialism, right? So we are always going to be held back by this idea that we have to be indebted to colonialism. Like we have to be to show gratitude. If not for the British, then we would, we wouldn't have had rule of law. We wouldn't have had modern civilization, English technology, industry, and so on, right? So. I feel like that sort of narrative on indebtedness, I, I think it continues on. Therefore, we should be, you know, we should feel, feel gratitude towards PAP and then towards the pioneer generation who worked hard. And I think that sort of narratives, um, I mean, fits nicely into their kind of ideology, right? I yeah. mean, the whole point is to how, how history is used or how the narrative is used to justify ideology. So if we want to raise questions about colonial exploitation, of um, the migrant labor in the past, then they'll say, no, that's not exploitation. It's just the, our ancestors working hard to build a nation. So that narrative of exploitation is then conveniently turned around to you know, be used to talk about hard work instead. And that's how it's continually used up till today. So I think for us now, I mean, because we, we talk about how this is an opportune moment to start rethinking our own history or future, but it's also important then to start rethink a possibility of us I mean, yeah, we were colonized, but can we think of ourselves as completely decolonized kind of subjects? Have we, you know, been able to mo- move on, move mm. forward from there? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to keep seeing this framing and reframing of of our history according to whatever narrative is the most convenient at the time. So I was just reading the Channel News Asia report on Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long's kind of speech for the op- launch of the bicentennial, where he basically reframes 1819 as as without 1819 we would not even have had an SG50 to celebrate, and and it's it's really odd. So like he essentially said, you know, 1819 is what made us Singapore, and this whole Singapore exceptionalism. He's like, oh, because Singapore was governed separately the british governor separately from malaya that's why you know we evolve different you know he gets to be the revisionist historian but some (laughs) other people don't get to be revisionists you know (laughs) and 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 this whole like because we are governed separately that's why we you know somehow evolved differently and that's why singapore became an independent nation that's why we did well as an independent nation and i've not seen them say that before this seems to be like slightly new slight rejigging of the story again yeah, even in the most superficial way, that's not correct because Singapore was not governed separately. We were part of an entity called the Strait Settlements, right? It was Malacca, Penang, and Singapore, and we were the capital. But there were three components to the Strait Settlements, and it was you know Singapore wasn't governed separately at all. So even in the most superficial way, he's just getting his facts wrong. This is crazy. I think they're counting on the fact that like Singaporeans were asleep on that day of history class, <laughs> and you know no one will pick up on it. And I think, yeah, that's this whole like narrative of if what we have is good now, then what came before must be good. So like, oh, look, Singapore is so modern and rich now. So therefore, the colonialism must have been good because it led us to this point. And, you know, I, I hear the same also, right? Like if there's critiques of, oh, you know, um, we were forced by colonizers to speak their language and not our own, then you know, people will say, but isn't it good now that Singaporeans speak English? That's why you're so competitive on the global market. And it's like, yes, I can speak English and at the same time recognize that there was something wrong with destroying native tongues and forcing people to speak in your language or in the colonizer's language. Like We can do both. You know, it is possible to be critical. It's not either it was terrible and we should throw it all away, or we should all be grateful. Yeah. And then what does it say about like 
pre-colonial indigenous cultures, right? It's trying to assume that there was no civilization, there was no culture, no legal system, nothing. Like, I don't know whether they still regurgitate the sleepy fishing village thing. I but I mean, it, it, it presumes that, right? <laughs> that there was nothing. Like, basically, you know, the indigenous uh, communities, i.e. Malays, of various, you know, sub-ethnic um, groups, had nothing. We had no culture to us. I mean, I've heard people asking, oh, Malays got culture, is it? <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, you know, I mean, that is a, when, when you say that, you know, um, the British essentially introduced civilization to us, it's, it's to assume that whatever existed before was not a civilization, you were not a civilized people. And I think that is also another question that we must ask because I think that has repercussions to how we see, we continually see the Malay community today, right? Um, how do I, um, to add on to Fadia, like we can see, you know, there's this idea about. Uh, the indigenous indigenous peoples you know, um being like peoples without people without history so and uh, we have to point out also like we can't just uh, look at the bicentennial in a way that is like detached from this culture surrounding like colonialism uh, around the world um i mean in this decade alone uh, you know like in um uh, um countries that were colonized uh, are grappling or uh, gra- uh, gra- grappling and like thinking through about the legacies of colonialism uh, take for instance uh, you know the roads must fall movement in south africa the australia day movement in like uh, in australia but uh, uh, unfortunately like our like when we commemorate like our past we do not do not do not really reckon with the uh, with um with the effects of colonialism but it's just more like um, commemoration after commemoration, and I find it also very much, uh, very much a discourse of depoliticization. But I mean, like um, I think like we discussed earlier. At least I talked to Kirsten earlier about how the um the discourse surrounding bicentennial, the bicentennial, it's very much a political decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think on on Fadia's point, like the assumption that indigenous peoples had no culture, I think that also is an assumption that indigenous peoples had no politics as well so like I think we talked about this before that when like even nowadays in Singapore when minority groups get to speak they only talk about culture and tradition and customs and like you know like traditional dance and traditional foods and but they don't get to talk about politics as if like indigenous communities before the British came and introduced governance as if there was no governance it was some sort of like you know weird kind of tiny fishing village, everybody subsistence, you know, there's no sophistication, like everything was super primitive. And I think that, you know, we don't, we don't recognize that because now we are also such a depoliticized society overall, but it is so problematic to not bring in the politics of race and only talk about race as culture and diversity. So like the idea that if raffles is a problem, then you just put up four other statues of four different race, uh, racial groups, and then the problem is solved, right? Like, oh, then then that's the diversity. If I can just point out some of my favorite facts, right? When the Dutch arrived in Java, the Javanese actually had a similar life expectancy and living standards to Western Europe. Within two generations of Dutch enslavement and colonization of Java, their life expectancy and living standards had plunged by between a quarter and a third. So then today we think of, oh, you know, the, the, the indigenous people of Southeast Asia having this very 
you know, uh, short lives and, and uh, you know, having um, great poverty. It was because of colonial exploitation, right? And then we think of uh, when Raffles came to uh, Singapore, the, um, the uh, Sultanate of Johor had been dominant in this part of Southeast Asia for a long time, right? And we don't ask why were they dominant? It was because of an alliance with the Dutch. So the, the sultans, successive sultans of Johor had very masterfully played this, uh, you know, uh, European desire for trade and played off uh, different European trading empires to expand their position in Southeast Asia. You know, so it's, it's not like uh, the Europeans arrived and, and, you know, we were all just, I mean, you know, poor people living in, in huts or, or fishing villages or whatever. They came into a really sophisticated world which saw opportunity, you know, and then um, over time, right, the Europeans, as technology enabled them to extend their strength more and more into Southeast Asia, they used their guns, germs, and steel to exploit and oppress us. But, you know, it wasn't tabula rasa when they arrived. So it's, it's, just, it's just really, it's honestly, it's a very racist idea, you know, when you think about, um, to think about uh, the indigenous people of Southeast Asia as, as just being a blank slate on which the Europeans wrote. I think they also kind of skewed the way we think about what is necessary and what is good and what is development, right? So I remember this. Um, so I was reading uh, Anthony Burgess' The Malayan Trilogy, mm-hmm. and then at one point uh, in this in this in his novel, he he has the the British schoolmaster talking to these group of Malay boys and then they're like complaining about the British coming and he's like but look what we gave you you know he's like look you have shoes on your feet and like now there's education blah 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 and then like isn't it good that now you have shoes last time you didn't have shoes and then one of the boys was just like sir I only need shoes now because you built roads that made my feet hurt you know like like so how it's completely skewed what we think is necessary and is good so it's almost like you know this this really old long-term marketing scam where first you make people think they need something and then you sell the thing to them. And I think that, that continues to go on today. This, this is, there are a few threads here that I can pull, but we can agree. Uh, col- uh, colonialism is a horror story. You know, yeah. there, there's, uh-huh. there's a lot of horror no element in this. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, similarly, like just riffing off on Burgess's book, yeah. actually uh, one, one interesting, uh, like, uh, story of origin, which I which I find quite fascinating, is the term that uh, Malay people would use, matsali, right, um, and and the origin of matsali, or rather the the, the idea of that that, that word sali. Uh, I think it's a uh, from what I recall, it's a play of the word soli, which is righteous or someone who's holy. So it's uh, it's uh, in a sense, it's uh, there is this very interesting. You know, accepting of the other as a mat, as in you know, you are one of us, but at the same time calling them, you know, you are you are a very righteous person. You know, in a in a, a negative way, in a derogatory way. So I like that how that term sort of like carries itself up till today. You know, the the, the resonance of oh this person, like the example yeah. you cited. You know, oh you think you may have given us all this, but that's one uh, one uh, one aspect of it. The other one is you know we've been talking a lot about. Uh, where the term fishing village came up a fair bit and you mentioned about technology also very briefly earlier on and I just wanted to cite an example of uh, so my partner is also an artist and she did this work in uh, Batam where she worked uh, together with a fisherman actually and so the fisherman was actually talking about some of the different uh, uh, strategies or things that's like changing uh, uh, or occurring within Batam itself 
And one of the things that, that was really fascinating when she shared with me this story was how they had then wanted to introduce GPS, like navigational system for the fishermen to sort of like find their bearings, so on and so forth. And the answer he gave was extremely, you know, like fascinating. He was like, why do we need this? this the, the, the sea is in our heads, like navigational system is in our body. So in, like, it's interesting to talk about technology and intelligence in this manner as well, that, you know, technology isn't some visible, physicalized, real element that needs to be uh, experienced or seen or justified as this was what was brought in but what was maintained in the body as well so you know the kinds of intelligences that we operated even without like these physical uh, prosthetics so on and so forth so I don't know I think that there's something there that also needs to be teased out as well in terms of how technology had a role to disrupt or to dispossess the body in general and how we then also had to reshift the way we think about not just the way we operate but the way we think in terms of our languages in 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 uh, in, in responding and also working together with new technologies or new tools in moving forward in, in the interest of speaking about modernization so on and so forth um, i i wanted to add on to like uh to Kirsten's point about you know like having um the the continued idea that um, in Singapore the minorities are only supposed to, uh, do not contribute to a wider discourse of politics, but only kind of uh, they are minoritized as uh, protectors of like tradition. But I would also like to point out that this is kind of a very much uh, I think we've inherit inherited it like since the colonial times. I mean, even uh, even right now when we t- when we we talk about academic work, for instance, like in Singapore studies. Uh, well, like uh, grand, you know, like grand authors, uh, Chinese male authors would um, would present like how do I put it? Would would present themselves of as having theories or histories of Singapore in general. So they are the founding kind of like uh, founding figures of Singapore uh, Singapore studies. But yet, you know, like um, minority academics are not really they they talk um, how do I put it? They um, they articulate like you know the uh, they articulate the perspectives of. Of minorities, but yet they are not seen as uh, contributing to a like like um, con- contributing directly to uh, a br- the broader discourse surrounding uh, surrounding uh, Singapore. Yeah. So I was hearing people say things like you know um, historical texts in English or in Chinese are historical texts, Malay texts are myths and legends <laughs> sort of books. You know, and and that's that's a way of belittling or dismissing. Um, the way that different cultures might choose to document, and you know, just because the the way people choose to to document and preserve their history is different doesn't mean that oh, you know, this one we cannot trust because it's just their myth and you know, it's just their oral history, just storytelling. But this is history that we take seriously. Yeah, I think same goes for the whole myth of Sang Nila Utama, right? Because I think we need to question what we mean by myth. So, like, is it the same as uh, objective or, like, factual history? And what's the function of myth? Because, you know, myths are important across all cultures, right? So, I heard, I mean, I hear this a lot, but recently my friend was telling me about someone, um, an educator, who said that, oh, yeah, you know, Sang Nila Utama is just a myth, you know, it's not true. And... Person, the person doesn't realize the impact that may have onto a person, uh, on a minority or a person from the Malay community, because then that hurts. That I mean, it hurts the Malays in a way that you know their history is not taken seriously. It's not about whether it really happened or not. We can talk about that separately. But the fact is that um, certain aspects of our past or uh, things that uh, we hold as important are dismissed, and therefore when it's dismissed, and then people won't take it seriously, right? And for example, like how. 
you know, when when they constructed the Sang Nila Utama statue, people were saying the same thing because I was looking at like Facebook comments and then people just, yeah, but you know, it's just a myth, it's not true, nobody knows how he looks like, this must be some Chinese girl's fantasy of how a brown, <laughs> handsome Malay man should look like, I don't know, yeah, but... Um, but the point is, I think when it comes to history, I think certain histories are seen as more important. So minority histories are not seen as an important source of history for the entire nation. Mm, I think I remember before before we started recording this podcast, you were talking about you know like, for instance, the fact that there was a Sangnila Utama Secondary School mm. and that it was considered a an elite school that people wanted to go to. And like as a Chinese Singaporean, I had never heard of that. So that's actually, you know, another example of entire communities and facets of Singapore history that's been just completely wiped out. Mm. And apparently now, you know, all you have is the representation of of it in a statue. But what does that mean? You know, does that actually replace this very concrete history that had very real effects on people's lives? When, when the history was wiped out. Yeah. I mean, firstly, people a lot of people don't know that Malay medium schools existed and that there were real repercussions when these schools were closed down. So um, I think there's still a lot of anger for people who remember, as in people who were affected by that. So that... Um, I think there were two prominent Malay medium schools, um, Sang Nila Utama Secondary School and Tun Sri Lanang Secondary School. These were both good schools and then people could go on to do like higher education after their O-levels. Um, so, I mean, a personal story. So, my mom went to Tun Sri Lanang Secondary School. She went to a Malay medium school. She did well. She could qualify to an English medium junior college. But because of the huge uh, shift in the language, she couldn't cope and therefore she couldn't do well. And she couldn't get her A-levels, basically. And so, I think there are so many other who were also implicated by that kind of system but we never saw how Malay schools could actually produce like highly educated people in, in society. We only see now as Chinese schools being the elite schools and just a lot of money being pumped in to sustain the schools and to ensure the elite status but we never saw this in the Malay schools. So we never know that oh, there's such a thing firstly and that Malays also went to school mm. actually. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's a, a tension with madrasas as well like whether there is any kind of correlation we can build upon this I, I, uh, I suspect that you know like this kind of dispossession so like I was looking at some Facebook groups and people discussing how yeah you know like you put up a Sang Nila Utama statue but then you demolished our Sang Nila Utama secondary school and so I think that sense of like wanting to, to guard that right I think people have that towards the madrasa so which is why, I mean, that's also a problem. Like, it's important to critique the madrasa education system. There's a lot of problems with it. But then people are very uh, possessive or, you know, they want to keep that so much because we feel like we are losing all our other institutions. So, like, what else do we have for ourselves? You know, that sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that just kind of gets, I guess, racialized and essentialized back again that, like, um, Malays are... Uh, you know, protective of madrasa because of religion and then they are very conservative. Or, or the idea that, you know... Um, Malays don't do so well in school but completely devoid of the fact that you know it it was so unfair in the first place to be forced after all your education in Malay to be forced to switch to English like in the course of one year and that's that's an institutional barrier and when we don't talk about these barriers then it just becomes racialized to oh you know they, they just don't do as well they don't work as hard blah 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 and and then that gets fed back again yeah. and again. It's so worth mentioning that this is even perpetuated in the media as well, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, like, Brita Haryan would often, you know, always have, like, oh, this Malay student did, blah, 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 like, excelled in blah, blah, blah. Like, 
somehow there seems to be like in itself we perpetuate this idea that oh we never really do so well and suddenly there is this bright shining promising star you know that's coming up yeah. so I think even that in itself within the media it's yeah. quite problematic and I, I remember well. like when I think a f- like a few years ago when there was like a cabinet reshuffle and then there was like more than one Malay minister and then Lee Sien Long was like oh this just shows progress in the Malay community and it's like please lah <laughs> Malays have been qualified to be ministers for forever. Okay, who is the one who plans the reshuffle? You know, like I want. I want to say something to add on to what Kirsten has said um, about like taking the bicentennial uh, from the viewpoint of uh, of the state. So we when we talk about like um, when we, when we talk about like lived everyday lives here, um, when we categorize, you know, when we inherit like categories of like race, religion, and we we only we do not. We only um we we seem not to recognize that you know like all these uh, concepts do not neatly um do, do not neatly uh, transcribe uh, um, to these concepts. I I find it so you know like to so uncritically and wholeheartedly embrace that that four ethnic group way that Chinese Malay Indian others way of governing, uh and to celebrate it as diversity and to celebrate it as like you know as if it was built for racial harmony so i remember in school like so many years ago in primary school when they were talking about how raffles did the town plan and then he had like the chinese quarter and the malay quarter and it was presented as if it's like oh you know and then from there it shows how singapore was multicultural from the beginning and then you know then now today we have racial harmony so i was in primary school at the time when they first introduced that whole racial harmony day sort of thing right so that was the new narrative that we were being kind of taught and to kind of and that's just like one of the things from colonialism that we've embraced as if it was like oh the british were so kind hearted to like frame it this way for us it's so nice of them to have thought about multiculturalism from the beginning you know so nice of raffles to plan kampung glam what a nice place it is today and 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 like not realizing that like colonizers do not come to colonize you because they are so kind hearted that they want to make your city prosperous for you right they make your city prosperous for themselves and then they exploit you and then when it no longer suits them then they leave and it just kind of reminds me how like uh this american uh south asian american comedian hari kondobulu he always had this joke of like The British did not give India the railways because they were super kind to India. It's because it's really tiring to plunder on foot. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah, like, why don't we remember this, right? That colonizers don't do things to help you grow. It's not like Raffles was here to hand in hand with Singaporeans help us grow. Like, Raffles came here to make money off our backs, and we don't. Not only do we not feel anger about this, we actually like embrace it as like, oh, Raffles is one of us in our Singapore family. And and it's just so odd. <laughs> like the more you think about it, the more it's like. Masali, no. Masali. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, do people name their children like Raffles nowadays? No, right. I don't know. I've not met. Any. <laughs> But like Raffles is now a brand, right? It's like associated with excellence. You might get sued if you name your kid Raffles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if I can just just make two quick points. The first is that uh, Sang Nila Utama uh, Secondary School was actually created by the socialist left wing PAP government, right, in 
And in a period where uh, first they had this whole narrative of we are Malayan, you know, we are part of uh, the Malay Peninsula, we was emphasize their identity. And they had a policy of multilingual education, education for all in your own language, right? And why? Well, part of the reason is because they had to win elections. You know, we, had, we were actually a democracy, a limited democracy, but way more democratic then than now. And the government had to be responsive to the needs of all its people, especially if it was going to uh, defeat, uh, you know, race-based parties, right? Singapore also had AMNO and MCA and, and MIC back then. Um, so, you know, the, this, this, the school itself is tied up in a whole different narrative and trajectory of Singapore that we then abandoned the moment we, you know, sneakily separated from, from Malaysia. Um, the, the, the broader point I want to make picking up on, on a lot of things I'm hearing is actually about this whole uh, myth-making, right? And uh, the anti-colonial uh, intellectual and doctor, Franz Fanon, right, from the French colony of Martinique, wrote this book called The Wretched of the Earth, where he talked about how colonialism perpetuates a myth that degrades the psyche of the colonized for the purpose of teaching, molding the colonized into a subservient position such that they then come to accept it as natural and therefore then collaborate in their own colonization, in their own exploitation. And that is, you know, very much, I think, the, uh, a, a subtext and a, a goal of this whole narrative that we have been given. You know, colonialism is a good thing. We therefore are molded into these subservient uh, subjects of colonialism, whether it's by white men or men in white, and then we then collaborate in our colonialism. And so when people complain, oh, Singaporeans are, you know, politically apathetic or unwilling to do things, part of the reason, right, on top of, of course, all the disincentives to, to speak out, the fear, right, the, all the difficulties, our <laughs> incredible cost of living and, you know, all of that, is because we have been molded through this narrative, through this education system, and now through this bicentennial to collaborate in our own exploitation and subjugation. Um, as, as I said earlier, I think the discourse surrounding bicentennial has this, uh, like it's, um, it is very much uh, conscious of the need for, you know, like having uh, diverse voices, but at the same time, I think like even the even the concept of um, diversity is a bit uh, uh, a bit problematic. Um, okay, so basically, like you know, moves towards diversity. You know, having all this like uh, more uh, more statues, more structures um, does not actually change the uh, material stru structure of our everyday lives. Uh, for instance, like uh, well, even if we uh, even we uh, if we have a kind of top down approach to, to diversity. Well, um, racialized and gender minorities are still, they still remain in like states of uh, marginalization. And we also need to take note how the diversity uh, also accompanies with it like a very depoliticized uh, mode of discourse. Yeah, Yeah, I think, um, you know, what came up when they put up the four statues as well was th that there's also a continued erasure of women Mm. In, mm. in the bicentennial yeah. and so I think was it SCWO the Singapore Council of Women's Organizations that said why was there no if you had to put up a statue why was there no woman and 
And I think one of the reasons was, oh, we considered this woman, but she didn't actually arrive in 1819. Oh, God. Which was like... I think Hajar okay. Fatima, right? Yeah, Hajar Fatima. Fatima. They're like, oh, we, we are not sure if she arrived in like 1819 or like the year after or something like that. Neither did Sang Nila Yeah, I mean, like, no, but it was fine to somehow stretch it for him, but not for women, you know. So clearly in 1819, no women arrived in Singapore. <laughs> There's just absolutely no women. No, no, good. So we have reasons to blame men. In this case, <laughs> it's very obvious. <laughs> yeah. On that note, talking about all these uh, uh, statues, yeah. um, this is this is off tangent, and I apologize for saying this. But you know, I I started off hating the Malayan a lot, mm. like you know. But increasingly, I find the Malayan a very complex thing. So it's 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 a the Malayan, according to uh, to, to one uh, article that I read, the Malayan is actually female, but it has a mane. So this is a very interesting queer chimera that we have <laughs> as a mascot, and I, I feel like you know as something that we inherited or something that was constructed, we have an accidental uh, you know very uh, strange beast that we are encountered every single day. But you know, like I said, I, I started off hating it, but right now I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah. It feels like it it it's pointing or it potentially points towards something that we could actually unpack and 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 move somewhere else. I, I'm not being Positive. In fact, I'm a very negative person when it comes to this, but it, it feels optimistic all of a sudden. Yes, I think right now we can uh, like we can tell you that the Malayan is the Singapore's first queer icon, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and I find it very fascinating actually. <laughs> but uh, for for our listeners who don't know, the Merlion was actually invented by some nameless person at the Singapore Tourism board in 1978 I think something like that so it's actually authentically Singaporean in a way that a lot of our other iconography isn't you know so there's something there <laughs> so is there a way we can subvert these other statues that they put up and and all sorts of other memorials that they might want to put up if we can yeah. I don't know how would we <laughs> sorry to have disoriented <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, like if uh, can I add on yeah. like to a separate like uh, separate discussion? So I think also like the the discourse surrounding Singapore uh, uh, the Singaporean bicentennial uh, it is firmly like um, uh, firmly from the position of like Singaporean exceptionalism, right? And we we forget that like Singapore, you know, like it's uh, it's a very new neoliberal city in a in a Southeast Asian environment, and you know like. Uh, you know, we are so-called the first world where our neighbors are, are not, um, and um, for ins- also like we have to kind of like uh, to see how I- if we are who who we are today is not it's not because it's not also be- uh, because uh, you know we di- we did not ma- mani- manipulate our surroundings, right? Um, I mean, there are reports about how uh, like reclamation uh, work in Singapore is also done because Singapore imports like sand from Indonesia, Cambodia, but and at the same time it erodes like land, land in other parts of the world to just fortify our own, our own position. Um, I would think that like um yeah, so there there is a lot of things that are sacrificed in order for us to put you know to, uh, uh to um to put Singapore at the center of like. At the center of our world, I think, and and like, this sort of narrative of exceptionalism doesn't even have its own internal logic, right? Because this whole idea that Singapore is some sort of shiny special place 
uh, in Southeast Asia because we are like unique. We we don't see ourselves with our links to the region. We see mm. ourselves as uniquely, you know, the best. But but then the logic of why Raffles even came to Singapore is because we are a node for the region for trade, right? It wasn't because we ourselves are the best. He only he only came to Singapore because of Singapore's utility for the trade in the in the wider region. Uh, you know, and in fact, like the way we talk about it is like Raffles specifically chose Singapore because there's something like really, really attractive about us. But mm. we weren't even his first choice, right? <laughs> he was just kind of like, oh, I guess you know, this yeah. this will do, you know. But we the way we talk about it is like, oh, it's so special that he looked at the map and he was like, this one, I must have this one. You know? It's our very own. I call it like uh, it's our very own like theological narrative. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, weren't we like his third, third or fourth choice or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he actually wanted the Karimun Island. That was I think that was his top choice, but it doesn't have as good a harbor as I don't think it has a natural harbor, whereas Singapore does. Uh, he actually wanted to avoid Singapore because um, of the complication with the Sultan of Johor, and um, you know the issues that they would then have with the Dutch. He was trying to find a place in Southeast Asia that the Dutch hadn't colonized that they could then use to base for the China trade, you know. Um, and Singapore definitely was not one of his preferred choices. But uh, I think it was Farquhar who told him about it. And then he realized he could use the succession to his advantage. So that's how he ended up in Singapore, but definitely not his top choice. I think there's also something, you know, the the sort of myth making that has uh, that leads us to think about Singapore and exceptionalism is part of that same narrative, right? When we talk about uh, our ancestors coming to the island, why do they come here? It's always to make money, right? Never mind that Singapore has been a haven for intellectuals and free thinkers and radicals and pirates and anti-colonialists and nationalists of all stripes. That Singapore. In the in the colonial period and, and especially in the pre-war period, was this place of of great intellectual you know foment that all these different ideas came through Singapore because we were the the premier port of the region and you know uh, interacted with each other and formed new very interesting unique combinations. The first uh, political party founded in Singapore by Muhammad Yunus, you know. Um, uh, modernist Islam coming into Singapore by members of the uh, of the um, sorry Hajis returning from the Middle East, you know Chinese uh, radicals coming fleeing uh, oppression in China and the the crackdown by the Kuomintang crackdown, uh, Indonesian nationalists fleeing the Dutch in the in the twenties, you know Chinese. Uh, the the Communist Party evolving and the Kuomintang both evolving out of Sun Yat-sen and his his nationalism and you know exporting it to Singapore in the 1900s. You know, it's, Singapore is a fascinating place with a long history of very interesting people coming here and very interesting ideas. But in our history, in, in the official version of history, no, it's just people came here to make money and they didn't care about the rest of the world. All they cared about is making money, and that forms part of the you know a part of of this of this myth that then tells us we sh- we also should only care about making money and never mind about the rest of the world and no solidarity and no you know understanding of anywhere else in the region i think that that struck me also when i see 
Singaporeans talk about colonialism, the lack of solidarity. So, you know, people who talk about colonialism and when, yeah, it was bad in some places and millions of people died, but we did well out of it. This kind of sense of like, well, yeah, I guess you can say colonialism was bad elsewhere, but we did out of well out of it, so we shouldn't criticize colonialism. And, and it just kind of struck me as this very well. I got mine sort of attitude like just because Singapore did not have a great famine in which millions were killed doesn't mean that we shouldn't be horrified and we shouldn't stand with other peoples who have been colonized and say this is unacceptable this whole kind of like oh well you know we were one of the better off ones so just because like your your kind of subjugation was relatively considered benevolent compared to some of the other ones then it's somehow okay to be subjugated rather than standing together. I think that kind of lack of solidarity also was, I, I guess, not surprising, but somehow disappointing all the same. Uh, I think there was this, uh, how do I put it, like commentary uh, in the newspapers yesterday or something like that about how, you know, like um, colonialism in Singapore should be recognized for its lack of violence. You remember that? <laughs> its lack of. No, I didn't see that one. Okay, yeah. Uh, no, there's this idea about we could, like how do I put it? Um, how we became post-colonial is because you know like uh, one side transferred power to another instead of like having you know colo- like our own colonial struggles. And yeah, so it's like this complete erasure of anti-colonial movements, right? So it was just like the British left because I don't know they just decided that they would, and then they handed it over, and everyone was friends. Everyone was friends, and just kind of erasing that sort of struggle. And I, I think it's useful for today's politics as well to continue erasing that struggle, right? Because then it feeds into this whole narrative of telling Singaporeans that we are not protesters, we are not activists, we do not, you know, organise, we do not um, engage in politics in this way. Uh, there's no such thing as, like, protest movements in Singapore. And... And continuing to erase that sort of anti-colonial struggle feeds that, right? Because once Singaporeans know about the anti-colonial struggle, then you can't sell the message that Singaporeans never fought for things politically. Mm. There's, a, there's, a, there's an uh, example which I find that uh, that lends itself to, to today where we are. So like I think we mentioned about uh, Taipu Sum and not having uh, instruments allowed, but recently there was this, okay, some instruments were allowed. But prior to that, like, you know, you weren't allowed to have instrumentation. So there was this particular, like, you know, ban uh, in terms of how one practices. Back in 1856, a similar thing happened as well, where Wayang was not permitted uh, to be staged as well. But th- that caused a bit of a backlash. And then, you know, uh, uh, at, at some point when uh, uh, this, uh, I guess when these protests happened, then the British said, okay, you know, we, we, we don't touch the hornet's nest that way and so we allow. So I think like that replicating of power and authority is still present today. So in a sense, when I, at the interest of talking about how do we decolonize, I think mm. the, the body is still possessed by yeah. the spirit of right. before and we haven't a- exactly you know gotten rid of much, if not any yeah. for that matter. I mean, the, the idea like, you know, people who are like, oh, before, you know, Singaporeans were coolies and laborers and then now we're all like middle class jobs, blah, blah, blah. And this shows that Singapore has progressed. And I'm like, no, we still have like coolies and laborers. We just import them from, from Bangladesh and India now, you know, just because we aren't the ones doing that backbreaking work doesn't mean our society has actually fundamentally progressed in that way. We still continue to profit off these like exploited, underpaid 
bodies, right? That we just we just don't recognize them as Singaporean. Whereas we would recognize like a Samsui woman or like a coolie and then we would have like a little statue of them at the Singapore River, but we won't recognize Bangladeshi migrant workers. When actually there is a continuity. Like the when you listen to to you know migrant rights NGOs describe the way that we treat migrant workers in construction mm. sites today and mm. then you read historical texts about how yeah. how like coolies were treated exactly in that day it is the same you know it's the same treatment yeah. and so like to pick up from that right so when we're thinking about colonialism as something that's that not only just happened to us right but as Bani said in, in terms of being possessed is actually now in us um then thinking about where where do we go from here? What do we do, right? And I think we we hear about decolonization, deco- decolonizing, decolonizing your mind, mm. and and it's like a very trendy thing to say now. But right, but but what does that mean actually? What does that involve? You know, it's not enough. Surely it's not enough to say, oh, colonialism was bad. Therefore, now I'm. I have completed my process of decolonization because I recognize colonialism is bad and I don't like the bicentennial. So therefore I have risen to like a state of the So what what does that involve, you know? Uh, what and, and there are people who have been doing the work for, for years already, right? So what does that involve? What would you say? That, yeah. So maybe like we could we could think uh, talk about like the, um when we talk about decolonization, maybe we could really relate it to contexts like across the world. Like for instance, in in South Africa, like the uh, the movement like Roots Must Fall, uh, when they talk about decolonization, they actually had like have a spe- specific manifesto that um uh that tab- like that tabulates like the uh, the different demands of uh of what it means to decolonize, and one of these demands is uh very uh very economic, uh, which is uh, rep- uh reparations reparations towards like mar- marginalized uh, p- uh populations, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to talk about how decolonizing, I mean, it's become a very a buzzword, right? but I think only among certain circles. I think we see it a lot in the kind of online social media activist kind of circles, but we also see this a lot amongst like academia, in, within academia. So I think decolonizing for a lot of people is more of a theory and then it's very disconnected from the ground. Like there's not a lot of praxis that comes with it. So I think... It's a kind of theory people discuss, oh, how do we decolonize knowledge? How do we discuss me- decolonize uh, methodology in social sciences? But without praxis, without that kind of serious impulse to fight, as in I think decolonization is really a fight, right? It's a struggle. Without the real struggle to fight, I think, uh, I think they will never become a reality. I just wanted to share a quote from... Um, so this is one of the forgotten histories that we have. So she is one of the... Uh, well-known Malay radical uh, political activist. So she was a member of AWAS, which was the Angkata Wanita Seda, which was like a radical women's movement. Um, and later on, I think she joined the Malayan Communist Party to fight in the guerrilla warfare. So what she was, was her name? Her name is Shamsia Fakih. Um, she's one of the more well-known figures. So I just wanted to share, like translate like her quote here. So she says here, I don't know how I can be so uh, brave in taking part in politics. Actually, I don't know much about politics and I don't know much. I don't have much experience in the nationalist struggles. I'm also not highly educated. However, I have this uh, very high spirit of fighting uh, to, to fight against the colonizers for the sake of national liberation uh, of, of our land and our nation. And this uh, so this spirit to fight, right? This spirit to fight 
is 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 the most important and i'm not afraid of anything so i think that kind of spirit that is where the decolonizing impulse should come from that wanting to fight for something and against something and i think if we just keep on talking about decolonizing as theory like it you know we're still very privileged and we're not going to give up many of these privileges to fight for something uh beyond you know us ourselves and yeah. it perpetuates this idea that you must somehow be expert in the theory before you can do anything exactly. right and everyone is like oh i don't know enough i don't read politics i can't do exactly. it and it's disempowering on that level exactly. as well yeah exactly. but in the arts you know some of this work has been going on do you want to talk a bit about that then Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you because you, I watched you do your spoken word poem at the Other Tongues Festival, like only in December. Um, and then I really love the poem that I, I don't know, I can't remember if it's in Malay or English. I think it was both, right? I had because you were talking about patriotism, and then like mm. it was very. I felt like it was very powerful, and and like I think if you don't understand Malay language, you wouldn't understand the kind of level of or the depth of emotion that I think that you conveyed lah during the poem. Yeah, you want to talk about that a bit. So I think the the one in Malay was a song oh, okay. that that I sang uh, was a short song, uh, and that song was also about uh, an uncertain future. Uh, and I kind of wrote that song for my kid, just talking about you know, hey, honestly, I don't know where we're going, but I think it's okay not to know. Uh, and I think it's what's most important is that we find our own. Uh, navigational uh, methods and 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 uh, navigational systems and points in order to sort of like find meaning and 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 connect with as many people as possible. So let's not let's not be entrenched by power systems and uh, and, and and structures which which oppress you and 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 bring you down. I think what's most important is how we come together, the kinds of uh, connections we make with one another, and how we, you know, provide care and support for one another. I mean, in in general, you know, because the the song talks a little bit about how we shouldn't listen to comments from Facebook and so on and so forth. Uh, the prospect of decolonization is not, you know, like it's not uh, it's not limited to like academics who can talk theory, but it's actually a way of us like collectively to talk about. The uh, to have our own uh, vocabularies about uh, thinking through the idea of freedom, and uh, th- I mean the idea. I mean, in, I mean in Singaporean context, like uh, we don't actually have like, a, you know, like we we don't really know, um, we don't really articulate like uh, the idea of freedom well because uh, you know like maybe our our, our freedom of ex- ex- expression is stifled. But ultimately, I think this is a also a very much like community or socially. It it should be decolonization should be a uh, a white uh, white all encompassing uh, social movement. Yeah. If I can add, I think a lot of it has to do with querying power, right? Uh, who has power? Why do they have power? What do they do with the power, right? And asking ourselves and trying to understand these forces which um, affect us very deeply. So I I think just developing this this. Um, habit or, or this constant uh, questioning of power over us um, is itself already, you know, an act of decolonization and a and a powerful step towards decolonizing ourselves and our minds. So, really, that can be done by anyone, right? For those of you listening, the moment you you finish listening, start asking yourself, right, who has power over you and and why? Do they deserve to have that power? And there you go, you're you're taking the first step towards decolonization. 
Um, probably in decolonization also, mm. we have to be honest with ourselves. Like for instance, what kinds of uh, I call it uh, constitutive absences uh, that has shaped our own like historical trajectory or historical position. For instance, when you talk about the bicentennial, like uh, the reverse or the mirror image, um, you know, like histories of repression or leftist movements and thought, um, um, it's strangely missing, missing in our narratives. And also, uh, what has disappeared in our rush to commemorate? Um, we what has disappeared? For instance, like orang laut populations have disappeared. You know, like our our histories of uh, leftist com- community organization have disappeared. You know, uh, modes of soli- solidarity that was done during, like, uh, in student unions, for instance, in the, in the past. Uh, you know, we've, we've not really engaged with that uh, so much. Yeah. Okay, on that note, I think we're out of time. Um, but before we finish, I just have to make one correction. Unfortunately, I got the whole uh, the history of the Merlion wrong. It was actually invented in 1964 by a, a British uh, ichthyologist, um, and uh, he was curator of the Van Cleef Aquarium at the time. Um, so it's it's also in its own way a, a colonial legacy. But hopefully we can, uh, you know, reappropriate it for our own purposes and and use it for our own identity. But on the other hand, it's it's I think it's like trademarked and controlled by the tourism board. Yes. So um it it itself still is uh you know it's not free to be f- uh, reappropriated unfortunately you have to like <laughs> hashtag freedom alliance freedom alliance <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay so thank you to our, our listeners don't forget uh there's also another special episode of the podcast with my lecture on it coming out uh and uh that will be also on, available on the website and through the usual channels so a big thank you to our guests fadia farhan and bani haikal thank you very much for being here today and sharing with us all your thoughts um thank you for having us kirsten and pj um it was a very fruitful discussion yeah i hope it won't be the last one for this year <laughs> in the face of the the all the other narratives that we're gonna get yeah i, I just sometimes you know um there's always like artist talks and whatever right, all these things and sometimes like these kinds of talks as well um, sometimes the, the, the tragedy is that we need like these kinds of trauma for these kinds of initiatives to happen when <laughs> you know these inheritance should constantly be challenged and yeah. discussed about <laughs> yeah so hopefully uh, more without without the need to commemorate anything yeah and I, I hope I hope uh, that you guys will be able to come back to our podcast and talk about a whole bunch of there's so many other issues that we w- we could talk about and of course also a big thank you to my co-host Kirsten thank yeah, you thank you I'm really glad that we managed to pull this one together uh, be sure to tune in to our uh, Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And do check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do consider becoming a member of New Narrative. It's just 52 US dollars a year or just one US dollar a week. And so this is PJ Thumb wishing all of you, all of our listeners, a great week and a great bicentennial ahead. <laughs>